Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. It is 6th of September, Wednesday, September 6th. I can't really believe it, but it is, and we are moving through this year. Man, we've got a lot of exciting things coming up to tell you about, some speaking and some opportunities for you to engage in some fun stuff. The the first one, the most pressing one, is tomorrow night, 5 p.m. Central Time, and it's going to be a live one-hour conversation about hope, neuroscience of suffering, uh, neuroscience of hope and faith with my friend Max Lucado. Now, if you know anything about Christian inspirational literature, you've heard Max Lucado's name. He's probably the most successful living Christian writer maybe ever, has sold hundreds of millions of books, and he's got a new book coming out next week too, by the way. But Max is going to sit down with me via the magic of Zoom. He's going to be somewhere in the world, and I'm going to be here in Nebraska, and we're going to have a conversation for an hour, and it's just going to be amazing. And you can attend that event absolutely free. You just have to register though. You you have to sign up for your link to to get the link to the event. You have to sign up and the event is Baker, B-A-K-E-R, BakerBookHouse.com slash events, E-V-E-N-T-S, BakerBookHouse.com slash events. You can click on, there's a picture of me and Max. You click on that and it takes you to a link and you can register. It does make you, it's a weird link. They make you put a question in make something up, don't worry about it, just to put something in that box of a question. And if you have a real question for me and Max, they're going to give us some of them ahead of time, and we'll consider some of them to to go over. But and at the end, we may cover a few questions. But you don't have to worry about that. Just register and sign up and jump in there tomorrow night with us, and it's going to be a great hour. The two of us talking, somebody from Baker Bookhouse and the publisher is going to be monitoring the chat, so you'll be able to Tell us where you're from and what's going on down there, and it'll a little bit of interaction with the audience, but mostly those interactions will take place with the Baker Bookhouse and Waterbrook people because Max and I are going to have a conversation that you're going to want to hear, and it's going to be great. So that's the first thing. We are going to be giving some public speaking opportunities around the country and around the world in the next few months. I'll give you some opportunities to come out and see us if you are in any of the places where we're going to be, and I'll tell you about that. And welcome aboard to the 400 or so new subscribers in the last couple of days. Ann Voskamp's people really responded to the guest post on her website, so if you came along from Ann Voskamp, I'd love to hear from you, Dr. Lee Warren. Lee at drleewarren.com is my email. We monitor those. We reply to almost every email that we get, and we would love to hear from you and hear your story and what's going on. Continue to pray for our friend Angela Burchette. She lost her husband, Mike, to a glioblastoma last week, and we are lifting you up. Angela, if you're listening, you and your family, your your wonderful girls, and we're sorry about Mike. We loved him, and what a life he lived. Just, friend, say a prayer for Angela and her family as they're mourning the loss of an incredible guy, Mike Burchette. And that being said, today, I want to give you some thoughts on what happens when life puts the pressure on you. You know, we talk about the massive thing, the trauma and tragedy and the massive things that happen to all of us, and they do. And life is going to bring you some pain. Jesus promised us that. that the, whole premise is, the whole premise of my new book, Hope is the First Dose, is this tension between what Jesus said in John sixteen thirty three: in this world you're going to have trouble, and what he also said in John ten ten. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, and the same Jesus who never lies and everything he says is true, 
said, in this world you're going to have trouble, and in this world you can have an abundant life. So there's some quantum physics at play here, some magic of where two things can be true at once, and I tried to write a whole book about that, and I hope that it's helpful to you. If you haven't read Hope is the First Dose yet, check it out. I think there's some stuff in there that's going to help you manage these traumas and tragedies and massive things that come along. But one of them is what happens if we view our life as an opportunity to honor God and we're aiming for this higher purpose and a future that's going to where he's going to wipe away all our tears and there's a resurrection and we get to see our loved ones again, all those things that, that are tied into Christian hope, if we really believe that, then how do we live our lives in front of other people that are looking for the same thing? in a way that moves and motivates them to try to figure out what we're about and how our hope can be caught or infected by, received by them as a transfusion of hope in this dark world that they need. If you want to live a life that has meaning and value and purpose, then how do you do that in front of other people when you're the one that's getting squeezed by the trauma and the tragedy and the massive thing? And I, I saw a, a post on Instagram the other day that made me think about this, and I've been reading a book called On the Road with St. Augustine from James K.A. Smith. And all these things have been percolating in my head, and I just want to share a few thoughts with you. Today's going to be a devotional Bible study, quiet time sort of thing. And we're just going to finish with the Tommy Walker song at the end of it. And I just want to give you some food for thought about what does a life that's filled with hope look like? And what do other people see when they see us going through our massive things? When the TMT happens to us, what do other people see and how can that be inspiring to them? And we're going to learn to change our minds because that's how we change our lives. And the good news is, as Lisa always tells us, is that we can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, I'm glad you're here today. I've been reading this book called On the Road with St. Augustine, and it's James K.A. Smith. And the whole idea is... Why are these metaphors so popular in novels and movies about road trips? There's Think about Thelma and Louise and On the Road, Jack Kerouac, and all these movies that are about the road, the, this idea that life is just this journey and it's, you're supposed to grab everything you can and YOLO, you only live once and there's really no purpose or meaning past it all and just it's all about the road is life, right? There's so many books and so many novels and so many movies where it's just this metaphor of we're on this big journey that means nothing or goes nowhere and we just need to enjoy it while we're here. 
And I would just suggest that's an antithesis of the Christian response to what life is about. And that there's a couple of different ways you can look at all that. And James K.A. Smith starts this chapter, A Refugee Spirituality, How to Live Between. And he's talking about how do you live between this tension? And we've talked about it many times, and that's why I think hope is so relevant here. This tension between the now and the not yet. If we really believe that there's a future for us as Christians, then we're not just aiming, wandering around aimlessly in life. We have a purpose, and our life here has a purpose. And Jesus would say that part of that purpose is to honor God to help other people find this living hope. James K.A. Smith says this, We cultivate indifference as a cocoon. We make irony a habit because the safety of maintaining a knowing distance works as a defense. If you can't find what matters, listen to this, if you can't find what matters, conclude that nothing matters. If the hunger for home is always and only frustrated, then decide that the road is life. There is no home. There's just the road. So that's where novelists like Albert Camus came along and wrote in books like The Stranger and Sisyphus and all these books where the idea is that you just feel frustrated with your life and you're banging your head with a hammer and it doesn't mean anything. And so you just decide that's all there is. And so you're just going to satisfy your desires and live your life as a free person and do whatever you want. And that sounds a whole lot like our current secular culture, doesn't it? It does to me. And so there's these two different types of metaphors that are common in these road novels and road movies. One is the based on Odysseus. Remember the Iliad and the Odyssey and the idea of, of Odysseus as this conquering hero who goes out on this epic journey and conquers all the, the enemies and comes back home as a hero. That's one way to look at this journey is that your life is some kind of now, you're some kind of hero in the story, and you got to fight and go out and conquer all these dragons and, and overcome temptations and come home victorious. That's one. And we see that in people like Thomas Wolfe and, and writers like that. And the opposite is Camus, which is it's not Odessian, it's Sisyphean. Remember from, home, from Dante's Inferno, the guy Sisyphus, his job was to push the rock up the hill, and every time he got it to the top, it would roll back down, and he had to start all over again. And that was his punishment for eternity was the work of his hands was meaningless because it was always going to fail. And so for Camus, he came to the conclusion that since we can't really ever make any difference and there's really no end to this journey and the road is life, then we just have to settle for a life where we're going to be frustrated and decide that can be redefined as joy. So he puts on this this uh, cynical, fake joy in the midst of his suffering and decides that's all there is to it. So in his novel, The Myth of Sisyphus, Camus describes the experience of the one for whom the illusions of rationality had been peeled back, James Smith says, in a universe suddenly divested of illusions and lights, man feels like an alien, a stranger. His exile is without remedy since he is deprived of the memory of a lost home or the hope of a promised land. Camus would say the world is inhuman, it's indifferent to us, and there are days, moments, seasons where its aloof strangeness, Smith writes, swells to encompass our vision, and we experience a vertigo, like looking at the Mediterranean on a cloudy day and the horizon vanishes in a bright gray. Camus says, if man realized that the universe like him can love and suffer, he would be reconciled, but the world refuses. So the idea here is that Camus says, okay, there's nothing past this life. It's, it's all there is. And there's really no reason to think it's ever going to be better than it is now. The rock's always going to roll back down the hill. 
And so Camus came to the conclusion that the road is life. is All you have is now, so just grab what you can and enjoy it. That sounds a whole lot like our secular culture today, doesn't it? So I've been thinking about that, and the Christian response is quite different. It's not that we're on this road and that's all there is and we're supposed to enjoy it and YOLO and live, you only live once and grab everything we can and, and do whatever makes us feel good because that's all life is anyway. It's not that. And it's also not that this cynical indifference of everything stinks and it's always going to be miserable and I'm always going to feel this way and people are going to die and there's going to be massive things and I might as well just decide I'm going to enjoy it anyway or I might as well not even think that it's worth trying to enjoy. And so that's the opposite of the Odessian ideas, the Sisyphean idea of Camus. And then we come along and say, what did Christians say? Christians are, as Peter put it in 1 Peter 2.10, called to be refugees, aliens, strangers. We recognize Camus right. We're not designed to be here. But the difference is we are designed to be somewhere else, and that place is real. And so we have this ability to live in this abundant life that Jesus promised us because of this ability to have and, this quantum physics thing about, yes, life is hard, and life is beautiful. Yes, I will suffer. Yes, I can have abundance. And that tension between the now, of what we're having to live through now, and this beauty and purpose and meaning that's around us, because we have this gospel hope in us, and the not yet, which is this life that we're coming to, where I get to see my son again, and you get to be reunited with the people that have gone before you, and we get to finally see Jesus face to face, and he's going to wipe away all our tears, and we're going to live in an eternal world where there's no pain and no sorrow and no suffering and all of that stuff. That's the not yet. And the tension between those two means that we're not designed for now. We're designed for then, and we're living with this life of purpose to try to show other people that there really is a valid reason for hope. And so Peter comes along here in 1 Peter 3, and he says in verse 15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do it with gentleness and respect. Do you see that? We're supposed to be ready to explain why we have this hope. And that, my friend, is why you're here. Peter says it's better, if it be God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He would agree with Kim, you're going to suffer here. Jesus said that. You're in this world, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be some suffering. And Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So do the things that help other people see Why you have this hope that you have? This thing I saw on Instagram was really interesting. I showed an orange. And the guy said, what's going to happen if I squeeze this orange? And, of course, the answer is, well, orange juice is going to come out of it. If you squeeze an orange, it's going to produce orange juice. And then what if you squeeze an apple? Well, it's going to produce apple juice. And he says, what happens if I squeeze you? What's going to come out of you? And the idea there is that what comes out of you is not the fault of what squeezed you, it's the fault of what's inside of you. So the idea was, if you say, I blew up on that person, or I said that bad word, or I threw that coffee cup, or I did that thing when I was under stress because somebody else was stressing me, because life was squeezing me, and that's not the truth. The truth is, when life squeezes you, what comes out is what's already in you. If you're an orange and you get squeezed, The stuff that comes out is not the fault of the squeezing. It's the fact that you were filled with that juice in the first place. 
That's why Proverbs 17.27 in the Passion Translation says this, Can you bridle your tongue when your heart is under pressure? That's how you show you're wise. An understanding heart keeps you cool, calm, and collected no matter what you're facing. See, Jesus already told you, friend, life's going to squeeze you. And Peter says, you need to be prepared to show people why you have this hope. So what happens when life puts the pressure on you? Can you bridle your tongue? Can you keep your brain in control? That's how you show that you're wise. Why? Because we're called to give people a reason for the hope that's inside us. And if, as Susie Larson said, nobody cares about the hope that's in you if they can't see hope on you. I love that. Nobody cares about the hope that's in you, or they're not going to ask you about the hope that's in you if they can't see hope on you. Isn't that amazing? Well, so how do we make sure that we have hope on us? Like, it's In my opinion, this is the whole conversation we've been having about this life as the road metaphor versus this life as the tension between the now and the not yet. Remember the Old Testament words we talked about that every time the word hope shows up in the Old Testament, it's almost always either this kavah idea, this tension of holding onto a rope and you're confident that it's not going to snap and that's this tension that's going to pull us out of this now and towards the not yet, this holding on of, of, of tightness, of tension. That's this kavah idea, this idea that hope is waiting, hope is holding on, hope is hanging on, and it's going to pay off by not letting you fall. Does that make sense? If we look at how do we make sure that we have an ability to show people the hope that's in us and that they can see hope on us because when we get squeezed, stuff comes out of us that doesn't look like the stuff that comes out of them. We don't blow up on people. We don't shatter. We don't swear. We don't throw things. We don't crumble and fall and and collapse into a puddle every time life gets hard because as we remember what Psalm, sorry, Proverbs 24.10 says, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? We are supposed to have this strength inside us that holds us up when the massive thing happens. We're, and I'm not saying you'll never become a, a dipper for a while. You will. You'll, you're, you, if you've read my book, I describe these four trauma responses, these four ways that people respond to hard things. And I think most of us are not crashers. We don't just fall apart and crumble and never come back when life gets hard. But we do tend to doubt and stumble and our faith is questioned. And I can tell you when we lost our son, definitely questioned God. My, my faith collapsed for a while, but there's a floor. There's this, there's this strength, this baseline holding on hope, tension that we start to remember this prehab, this stuff that we put in our hearts and our heads our whole lives, this, this is scripture, this stuff that's in us that comes bubbling back to the surface that reminds us that this isn't the first trouble we faced, and it's not the first time somebody's gone through something hard, and yet God has been faithful in the past, and so then we can take hope that he'll be faithful again in the present. Yeah, we're strangers and aliens in this world because when life starts to squeeze us, The stuff that comes out of us looks like hope. And people say, wow, how did you manage to go through that and keep on your feet? I get emails like that all the time when people say, I read your book and I don't know, you just gave me the words to say, to explain how I was able to walk through this hard thing. The fact is, Jesus said it plainly in Luke 6.45, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. If you're filled with good stuff, then when life puts the squeeze on you, what comes out 
is good stuff. And yeah, maybe it's hard at first, and it will be. Friend, I'm not saying it won't be hard, but eventually the stuff that's inside you that's built up over a lifetime of preparation for these hard things, being aware, being prepared that, yes, there are indeed hard things, that's what's going to produce the good stuff in the end. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. Let me give you a metaphor. So in the Old Testament, I got this from a guy named Chad Bird that I follow. He's a New Testament or an Old Testament scholar, and I really like his writing. And I'm, I'm actually reading one of his books right now. And he talks about the Hebrew origins of the ideas that we get from the Scripture. And today he had a post on Instagram, Chad Bird. I think his Chad L. Bird actually is his Instagram handle, Chad L. Bird. And he talks about Joshua 1.8, which says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And so Chad Bird talks about this word meditate in the Old Testament. And it's not like we think of with Eastern meditation of some weird guy sitting cross-legged on the floor with his fingers crossed saying weird sounds, om, or whatever. That's not what biblical meditation is. The word, the verb that the Hebrew uses is hagah. This word hagah is an image like when, when a lion is crouching over its prey and it's chewing and it's consuming and it's this sort of growling sound that you've I've seen it with Harvey and Lewis and you've probably seen it on wildlife documentaries when an animal's growling over their prey as they eat or growling over their meal. Harvey and Lewis make these weird little sounds when they're eating. And that's what the word for meditate is, is Haggah. It's like this this groan, this growl that means you're satisfied, you're you're chewing, you're taking nourishment, you're you're making a sound out of the depth of the experience of eating that food. Okay? It's probably like when we say when we eat something good or yum, it's this growling sound. And that's what the word meditate means. So Jesus says a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. You get that by spending that time meditating, putting good stuff in you. I called it prehab in the book. This putting stuff in you that's going to come out when life puts the squeeze on you. That, as Proverbs seventeen twenty seven says, an understanding heart keeps you cool, calm, and collected no matter what you're facing. That's how you bridle your tongue. That's how you bridle your brain. That's how you're ready to show evidence of the hope that's inside you when people say, hey, what's going on with you? How does that work out? How do you manage to find hope and meaning and purpose again when you go through these hard things? Because the road is life, right? And we say, no, it's not. The road is a journey, and we're sojourners and aliens. We're not Odysseus who thinks this life is to be conquered, and we're going to grab all we can and come home victorious, and somebody's going to pat us on the back. We're not that. We're also not Sisyphus. We're not just mindlessly pushing this rock up the hill, and we're going to be okay if it falls back down again because nothing means anything anyway. We're not that. And so when the world's looking at you and saying, "How is it? how are you wired differently than I am? How are you able to hold up into this extreme pressure when life puts the squeeze on you? Good stuff seems to come out of you. That's well, because of Psalm one nineteen eleven. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Friend, we don't have to act like we're going to fall apart every time the world puts the squeeze on us. Because we fill ourselves 
with good stuff. We, we Hagah, we meditate on things that are going to prepare us. We carry that EpiPen in our pocket, and we have a treatment plan in place for what we're going to do when life gets really hard. Okay, your brain is wired to follow repetitive patterns that you build or they were built for you. Those are called synapses, and you build synapses based on thoughts, feelings, experiences, and encounters. And unfortunately, when you make new neurons every morning, they will wire into previously established patterns unless you redirect them. And this whole science, this emerging science of directed neuroplasticity, is understanding that we can, in fact, have a profound influence on how our brains work by changing the things we choose to think about. And that's why it's so important to get this Haggah, this, this groaning over the meal of God's word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you because that one of your missions, that you're not just roaming aimlessly down the road, but you have a mission and a purpose that you're on this road of life. And it's to be ready to give an explanation to somebody else who's desperately seeking hope for the hope that you have. They want to know about the hope that they see on you. And you can then explain to them the hope that is in you. And they'll believe you because your witness is intact when you go through the massive thing. You crumble a little bit, you find your feet, you move forward, and you start being able to help other people find that light again. That's why we're here, friend. You want to know why you're on this planet? That's it. Because when you get squeezed, the stuff that comes out of you will be something pleasing and powerful to help other people say, I want some of that inside me. I want some of that so that I can handle the massive thing. Like you're showing me that you can. A good person, Jesus said, produces good things out of the treasury of a good heart. But don't forget that same Jesus said, you're going to have trouble in this world, friend. And he also said, the thief, you've got an enemy that came here to steal and kill and destroy you. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. My friend, life's going to put the squeeze on you. And if you're an orange and you get squeezed, the juice that comes out isn't the fault of the squeezing. It's the fact that you were filled with orange juice in the first place. And so my question for you is don't is be prepared for the squeeze. Be prepared for the fact that life is going to put the squeeze on you. And my question for you is, what are you filling yourself with to prepare for the fact that when that happens, people are going to be watching and they're going to see, does this gospel hope thing really happen? Does it make any sense? Is this person really who they say they are? Or are they going to not bridle their tongue when their heart's under pressure? Are they going to produce something that's just like the stuff that's in me when they get squeezed. And if so, then there really isn't any hope. If the people who are supposed to be Christians, who are supposed to have a gospel hope inside of them, who supposedly believe that we're here for a purpose and that we have a resurrection to look forward to, if we can't show good stuff when we get squeezed, then nobody will have any hope. And so be ready, my friend, to show that there is some good stuff inside you, and you get it, by spending time meditating and chewing on good things and remembering times in the past when it's been hard and God kept his promises that's how you find the light again friend you're going to you're going to have some hard times you're going to 
And there's a treatment plan, and it involves prehab, putting this stuff in your heart. It involves self-brain surgery, the tenets of not believing every stupid thought that you have and understanding that feelings are not facts. They are neurochemical events and that they're wired into you, and you can change them. But you change them by thinking about better things and understanding that the things you think about turn into neurotransmitters that influence hormones that change DNA and change how cells work and how genes get expressed and can even change your generations of people after you. So understanding interpersonal neurobiology and directed neuroplasticity and all these incredible ways in which you are fearfully and wonderfully made Understanding all of that with that self-brain surgery technique of biopsying your thoughts and putting some space in between what you think about and feel and how you respond to it. And then constantly rehabbing yourself by, by working on the things that you've had trouble with and trying to get better at them, getting community around you to help you hold up during hard times, and you do the same for them. That's, my friend, the treatment plan. It is possible to change your mind because that's how you change your life. And there's a treatment plan, and you can have it, and hope is the first dose. And I just want you to remember that you're filled with something, and you might as well make it good stuff because when you get squeezed, people are going to be looking, and they're going to ask you, how did you manage to have that much hope? And you're going to be able to answer because I know where I'm here. I know why I'm here. I know what this road is for. It's not Odysseus, and it's not Sisyphus. It's Jesus. And I'm going to start today.
And when he comes, every eye will see him. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who was dead but now lives forevermore. And a day is coming and nothing can stop it when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. He's the king. He's the judge of all the earth. And even now as we stand here, all of heaven is shouting out, worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we say, who is like him? Who is like this God? Surely there is none. There is none like him. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.